<clears throat> you'll recognize this as the story of Naaman. This, not specifically this message, but this account has been referred to as seven ducks in a muddy river. This, and we have to remember that all of Scripture, all of history, what we're going to read is a story of real people in real history, actual events really happened, but God ordered it in such a form, in such a way, to present His salvation to us, to present His omnipotence to us, and the fact that He orders everything for His own honor and His own glory for our benefit and for our salvation, for those who are His elect. We know in the Old Testament that we see, especially in the, the Jewish ways and the Jewish customs, there are so many types and sacrifices and uh, pictures and shadows of God's coming new covenant. He, he gives us ideas and He kind of gives suggestions and pictures of the new covenant to come in Christ. Now, none of these pictures, none of these shadows or suggestions or signs are exact. If they were, they wouldn't be a type. They would be the anti-type, right? So... You have to remember that when we look at these stories. It won't be exact. You won't, you won't look at Naaman and say, well, I'm not like Naaman because I'm not a man or I'm not a, a military person. Pray for God to speak to your heart and show us what He intends, not what people think, but what He intends. We're going to look at almost the whole chapter. Yeah? We will look at the whole chapter. Uh, actually, when we consider God's covenant, His plan of redemption, we know that the nation of Israel was up and down all through the Old Testament. They would turn to God and repent. Uh, then they would rebel. God would send a bad king or God would allow a foreign nation to come in and conquer them. He would never wipe them completely out, would he? He couldn't do that because the nation of Israel had to be intact, at least in a tiny part, for Jesus to be born like he was prophesied in order for there to be a Savior. Now, if we look at this whole story and we notice in the beginning, in verse 2, well, I'm sorry, yeah, that it mentions the Syrians on their raids. The Syrians had, uh, they were dominant over Israel this time. And uh, had they had their way, had they been <coughs> completely dominant, they could have wiped out the race. There would have been no, no Israel, no Savior. So, if we look at the whole story, and we even go over the line, into chapter 6. All the way over to verse 23. We see in chapter 5, remember, there were Syrian raids into Israel. They would just plunder, do whatever they want to. They weren't allowed by God to have complete reign over that. But see, if they had, 
they would have destroyed, but God was sovereignly protecting Israel, leaving a remnant. And the end of verse 23 says, And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. That's kind of like the full story. We're just going to look at the part concerning Naaman. We're going to look at this. Uh, we're going to consider Naaman. We're going to consider this young servant girl. Don't know her name. We're going to consider briefly the two kings, one of Syria, one of Samaria. We're going to look at Elisha, the prophet during this time. He's referred to as the man of God, God's man. We're going to have, you're going to have to remember that in this story that Elisha depicts God's influence. He is speaking for God. Uh, he just puts out what God wants put out. Uh, he is pretty much supernatural. He is special in this story. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and bust the bubble. The little girl is also special in this story. These two are extraordinary people, above average. They are the heart of the story. The little girl and Naaman. I mean, uh, the prophet, Elisha. The rest of the people are just people like me and you. They're just doing their jobs. Naaman, a big important guy, pretty much a national hero. I don't know if we have a national hero. <clears throat> Can't remember any. Naaman to Syria was a national hero. He was just doing his job. The kings, they're almost not worth mentioning except just to kind of lay out a time frame. They're not good kings. Okay? Uh, the servants are in there. They're just doing their job. And I want you to consider, since I mentioned the types and the pictures, because at the end I'm going to try to make application with how this applies to us. Are you carrying out your life the way that would be pleasing to God? I used to wonder, and we all know that Scripture is full, Scripture is complete, redemption is accomplished, there is no more, nothing else to do. But if God was laying out a new Bible, a new Scripture, and looking at our lives, and we were going to be in, in Scripture, in a Bible, what would that look like? Would, there be, would we be on the, the list of people who are significant and godly, or would we be on the list of people who are not even worth mentioning? Keep that in the back of your mind. As we look at this, I'm going to read and uh, probably offer comments as we go. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we are honored to be here with your word. We are honored that you chose us as part of your church. Dear Lord, your word is perfect and holy, and if we allow it, it will do its work. God, I pray that you will give us spirits 
of obedience, of humility, of tenderness to hear. God, we, the Word won't do its job if we don't hear, if we don't apply. God, I pray that we'll be obedient to your Spirit. Please, oh please, send healing to the bodies of the people who are not here. God, please protect the whites as they travel and heal them up. Some of them are still sick. Oh Lord, these bodies are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we're frail. God, please heal and help. We rely on you, just like our, our psalm said. God, you are our source. You show us salvation, and you are our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but... He was a leper. Here's our introduction to Naaman. Very few words. Very good introduction. Very good, very good description. Great man. The king valued him. Why did he value him? He, he was not only, we'll learn later, not only the commander of the army, he was an advisor to the king. He stayed with the king. Uh, he pretty much served as the king's personal bodyguard. He was important to the king. The king valued him. Uh, when we see this phrase, uh, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, well, I thought Syria was the enemy. Why would, why would we want the bad guy to give victory over the good guys? Well, like I said, Israel was rebellious, and God would have to... <coughs> use a foreign nation, a bad leader, to oppress them to the point that they repented and remembered the Lord and would turn back. Now, it hadn't been long since we, in our public reading, went through this. If you remember, in 1 Kings chapter 22, in verse 34... There was an instance where a bad king, King Ahab, was in battle. And it says, some guy, again, not named, what did he do? Shot an arrow. Well, by chance, which there is no chance, there are no coincidences, God guided this arrow, and it went in a the same of his armor and killed King Ahab. When Josephus later in New Testament times read this, it says that by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He said, hey, putting these two things together, that sounds like Naaman. So Josephus, somebody a lot of people look up to, said that Naaman was the one that shot that arrow. We're not told. Just an interesting point. And he was a mighty man of valor. He was brave and strong, good at his job. Uh, he didn't mind fighting. He was a soldier. I, I had a friend. I still got a friend. 
said before he got saved that he would fight at the drop of a hat. And he would drop the hat. Naaman was a brave man. He didn't mind fighting. But he was a leper. Now what do we know about leprosy? We know that in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, pretty much these two whole chapters are devoted to leprosy. It's diagnosis. Well, leprosy is a, is a broad term. Lots of, lots of skin diseases. This thing has condensed down through the ages to where now leprosy has been defined as Hansen's disease. Just one thing. Uh, they had a scaly condition, a hair with a wart around it, whatever. All these things were lumped in and called leprosy. Uh, the thing is, like I mentioned, types and shadows. Leprosy represents sin. So what do we have so far? We've got a powerful, influential, influential man. He's valued. He has good attributes, a couple anyway. But what? He has leprosy. And leprosy represents sin. Verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Now here again, I, I like these accounts of people who are significant, especially females or children who are not named but had played a big part. I think of this little girl. I think of the, uh, the little boy who when the uh, threat was made to Paul's life in the New Testament, there was some kid, some little boy found out about it and he went and told the people in charge, got word to Paul, saved Paul's life. This little girl, we're not told her name. Uh, she was probably about a teenager, maybe pre really close. That's the way the, the wording here looks. Back last summer in warm weather, when all the kids were over at our house, towards the end of the visit, somebody said, let's have family worship. So this story was on my heart. The kids all sat down. They were listening really good. And one little blonde-headed girl up in the front, kind of fidgety, with bright eyes. And I told about this little girl. And I said, you know what her name was? And this little girl said, May. And I said, whoop. I said, nope. We're not told her name is Maggie. <laughs> but we're also not told her name was not Maggie. <laughs> so it might have been. The thing is, she is not named. She is significant. You'll see here, her type, her picture is faith. So what was her position? We already know she was a captive. If you have a King James or a New King James, it says she was carried off captive against her will. How was she treated? We don't know. She might have been treated bad. From what we see of Naaman's household, his dignity and stuff, she might have been treated good. He at least listened to her. It says in verse 3, She said to her mistress, this shows her heart, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Wow, what faith. Now, why would she say such a thing? Uh, a little Jewish girl carried off in bad circumstances against her will. Who knows how she'd been treated in Stranger's household, pagan gods, 
It's kind of like Daniel's uh, and, and Joseph's story. You know, they're taken off, put in a, a pagan place. Well, obviously, she had heard about all the people that Elisha had healed. He knew all. He knew how to heal. He had the power to heal. Right? No. We see in, uh, I think it's Luke. Is it Luke or? Yeah, Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is telling about God's providence and God's planning and election, He said there were many lepers in Syria in the time of Naaman. There were many. But who got healed? Only Naaman. She had never seen anybody get healed. But she had faith in God's power. There were many lepers, but only Naaman was healed. So, word trickled down. She told the lady, maybe she was overhearing a conversation. You know, maybe Mrs. Naaman said, Oh, honey, is, your, is that spot bigger today than it was last week when he was putting on his clothes or something? We don't know. We're not told. It got, it, whether it was public knowledge or not, and we'll not talk about that later, she knew it. And in her culture, in her world, she knew that if somebody in her family had leper, leprosy, where would they go? Outside the gates. And they couldn't come in contact with the rest of the Israelites. They would be separated. Leprosy represents sin and defilement. Uh, you know, I said there were many lepers. The thing about leprosy uh, was and has historically been, and we know now, they didn't know then, that it's transmitted probably with body fluids, your tears or your mucus or your saliva, all this stuff. You touch your face, you touch your mouth, you touch your eyes and transmit it. You, you eat your food. Well, it gets on your fingers. People would lose their fingers. People would lose their lips or their noses. It, if it got really bad, if you lived long enough, if you were young enough when you contracted it, you know, you were put out. If you didn't have people to feed you or to send you food, you'd end up with no fingers trying to graze up food from the dump. Leprosy could indirectly kill you. It's not necessarily lethal. In that way, it is still like sin. You might be a sinful person and get killed because you're driving drunk or because you're robbing a bank or because you're taking drugs or because you're sexually uh, active when you shouldn't be. Sin can kill you. It don't have to. The thing about leprosy is you may not die of leprosy, but you will die with leprosy. There is no cure. It's not going anywhere. It's staying with you. Leprosy is tenacious. It hangs in there. She got word. She sent word to word trickled down, trickle down to Naaman. So he said, so where did he go? Where, where could he go but up? He said, there's nobody above me but the king. I'll go tell the king. 
Verse 4, So Naaman went and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Uh, I thought we were talking about Elisha. Should he not have sent a letter to Elisha? Are you the kind of person that will go out of the chain of command and just, well, I need to speak to the manager. That's, that's what he done. He said, I'm going to go out of the chain of command. I'm going to go straight to the top. He's going to tell Elisha, hey, you don't tell Elisha stuff. If you read the stories and the accounts, you don't order him around. Anyway, here goes Naaman in verse 5. So he went, this is Naaman, taken with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. None of the uh, estimates that I saw about this amount of money was less than $900,000. Most of it was over a million. It hovered right around a million, a million glory hallelujah dollars he took with him and then a big old bunch of clothes, fine clothes. Because we know from Austin's account, when you go to visit the man of God, it's good to take a gift. Remember, they were looking for the, looking for the horses, the donkeys, and he, the servant said, how about we go see the man of God? Said, he said, I don't have any money. The servant said, okay, I got a couple dollars. Let's go. He took a million dollars. And the letter, verse 6, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, now this is the king's authority, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Samaria was afraid. He knew he was in subjection and he knew at any time this neighboring king could come over there and just take whatever he wanted, start another war, deplete his resources, take away people. He was afraid. He was perplexed. He was frustrated. He says he just wants to start something. Remember, king on Samaria's side and the king on Syria's side really ain't got nothing to do with it. They're, it's just empty words. But, verse 8, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Here is a significant point. And uh, again, I'm just going to go ahead and drop it. I'm not going to try to wait because I might forget. Naaman's got a problem. What's his problem? Leprosy. What does leprosy represent? Sin. I want to get healed. He's looking above. Here's the problem. He's going above this. This is sin. I'm shooting right over it. Elisha knows the problem. And he said, you let him come to me. Because in Leviticus 13 and 14, all the address to the people about leprosy. I think I found one 
verse that used the word healed when talking about leprosy. Can you guess what the predominant word was when dealing with leprosy? What do you really need when you go to the priest for leprosy? You need to be cleansed. Again, we're, ta we're really talking about sin. Elisha said, I know what he needs. You send him, and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. Why would there be a prophet if there was no God? He says, this is, a this is a chance for God to be glorified. This is a chance to... We don't see the word gospel. He said, this is a, a chance to preach the gospel. This is a, a chance, this is an opportunity to display God's glory, to make God's name and God's kingdom known. He said, you send him to me. Don't worry about it, king. You go back to eating your grapes, whatever you're doing. So picture this. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Have you ever seen in the Bible, in Scripture, an account where you've seen the word chariot written out that it wasn't talking about an army or war or an evaluation or somebody being afraid? Oh, we're afraid of that army because they have chariots with wheels of iron. They've got so many chariots. Their, their military is powerful because they have chariots. I, I personally cannot think of a time in Scripture, except for this, when the word chariot is used unless it's talking about an army, a soldier, a war, a, some kind of conquest or a defeat. All this conflict. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, I'm going to Brian's house. I made a friend, Brian. What do you do, Brian? I do lawns. What do you do, Tracy? I drive a trash truck. Hey, can you come over to my house this week and we'll have supper? I said, yeah. So here, Brian looks out the door. Rachel looks out the door. Here's Tracy and Sharon rolling up in their gigantic blue trash truck. Do you think Naaman didn't have a horse he could ride? Could he not walk? Naaman was making a statement. I think the people in Samaria knew who Naaman was. It plainly says they went on raids over there. They said, here comes somebody. Picture Elisha's house. We know that Elisha was a prophet. Didn't, didn't claim to be rich. Didn't want to be rich. Probably a simple house. Maybe on the end of a dead-end dirt road. Cul-de-sac. Down there by himself. Mind his own business. Here comes Naaman with at least one chariot. Maybe more. It says chariots. Naaman with his entourage rolling down this dirt road, all the dogs barking, yapping, chasing the chariot, all the little kids running beside them. Mama, mama, look, a chariot, a chariot. It's got to be that bad guy, Naaman. Here he comes. He drives his chariot. He didn't have to drive his chariot. Naaman was making a statement. Look at me. He was not humble yet. If leprosy pictures sin, then a chariot and Naaman's attitude here pictures pride, at least in my mind.
So he walks up and he knocks on the door. Nah, he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Just that wording don't sound humble to me. He could have, I think it could be worded different to, to sound humble. It's not. He said he stood there. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. No mention of healing. Naaman said, I got a million dollars here. If somebody can heal me, my king talked to your king. Can we work something out? Million dollars. He's looking for a show. He's looking for something big. He says, I'm an important man. In my chariot, all my servants, million dollars. Where's the man of God at? Well, Elisha's watching the chicken fight out the back window. We don't know what he's doing. He's probably in there reading and praying. Important man. He's a man of God. He don't come out. He sends his servant. I think it was Gehazi. Don't tell his name. And he gave him very explicit, very simple instructions. What does he say? Two things you got to do, Naaman. Can you do two things? Can you hear me? Can you do two things? You can be rid of this quick, fast, and in a hurry. Go. Repent. Two. Wash. Accept that you're a sinner. Two things. Can you go? Can you wash? And what is the guarantee? The man of God speaking with God's authority in God's place, knowing the laws, knowing His power, knowing what God wants to do, says two things. Go, wash, clean. Just like that. Can you do that, Naaman? Verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So again it says, He turned and went away in a rage. If you have a King James, it says wrath. If you have a new King James, it says he was furious. ESV says he went away in a rage. He pitched a fit. Now, why would he say all these things? Remember his background. The Syrians and all these pagan things. Uh, we'll learn later that the God that he worshipped uh, was called Remen. Now, if you try to look this up, it's all really obscure and vague and there's more gods and some of the names are uh, general terms. Uh, some of them refer to multiple gods. I personally, and, and, and all of them, point to uh, gods of the atmosphere. Some of them Saturn, some of them uh, thunder and lightning, rain, all these things to make crops grow. What does that sound like? It sounds like Elijah to me. Uh, prophets of Baal, it sounds like a Baal, Baal God to me. So that's what he's used to. Well, looking at the, the one account we have of that, how did they act? 
They acted like a bunch of maniacs. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? He gave them half a day to call on their God and send fire. And they screamed and jumped and they cut themselves. Of course, nobody heard because Baal is not a real God. But he's saying, I expect some kind of fanfare. There's got to be some kind of a ceremony. There's got to be something somebody does. I just came through Damascus, or maybe that's where he lived, I don't know. And he names these two rivers. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Jordan River, except the ones in the baptismals that make it look all beautiful and clear and blue, the Jordan River is not like that. Typically, it's not much more than a kind of like a big, wide, shallow, moving mud puddle. It's not much. Uh, don't look like it would have fish in it. It looks like it's nasty. And Naaman knew this. He was familiar with these things. Another thing, for him to say, go and wash. Now, we know all through the Bible that uh, washings, cleansings, it came down through the centuries, and we know it as baptizing immerse yourself in water it was a ceremonial cleansing so in Naaman's mind what did he hear when this servant said go wash he said you stink you're dirty and he did sin is nasty ceremonially he did need cleansing he did need washing spiritually sin was the problem but he heard, you're dirty. He thought the opposite. He looked at the Jews. He said, hey, my country rules over your country. You bunch of losers. Don't tell me to come over here and wash in your mud hole. If I wanted to take a bath, if taking a bath was the deal, I could do that at home in a river. I could do it at night. I could do it where nobody's going to see my lip. I wouldn't have to be embarrassed. It wouldn't be public. He says, I can do this on my own if that's the deal. Again, with the pictures and types, no water can wash away sin. No water can wash away leprosy. Elisha was looking for repentance. And he went away in a rage. But, Verse 13, his servants came near and said to him, Now was this little girl in this number? We're not told. It sure sounds like it. What great military man would pause long enough to listen to his servants? Naaman had kind of like a little spark, a little glimmer of hope here. He listened to at least them. He listened to reason in this verse. And they referred to him with a, a respectful name, my father. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. I hear good news when I hear that. Good word, it's good news. You've got to do this two things. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? They're back here. Naaman's up closer to the porch. 
there out the road. He said, did I hear what I thought he said? There's people at home with no fingers and no nose. We know they're going to die. There's no hope for them. There's no cure for leprosy. And this man says, go wash in this muddy river seven times, like dip yourself seven times, and you can be rid of leprosy, this one thing that's holding you back. Naaman, you've got everything except leprosy is holding you back. One thing. The servants say, this is good news. Did I hear right? Is that what they said? So he listened. And verse 14 says, He went down. You don't go up and go into a river anywhere. So he went down. He humbled himself and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, like we just saw in verse 8. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, like a newborn baby, like he had been born again. You talk about a miracle. One second, leprosy. Next second, no leprosy. It's over. The curse is gone. Does that not sound like good news to you? It does to me. So he obeyed. He humbled himself and he obeyed. He had two things to do. Go wash. He did it. So he headed home. Just like the wise men in the account of uh, Jesus' birth, the wise men went home a different way, didn't he? No. He went back. This is more evidence, if in my opinion, of a changed heart. He could have went home. He had how many dollars with him of stuff? A cool million. I can take all this stuff. I can go home. We can have a big party and celebrate because I got a million dollars and a bunch of clothes. But he didn't. I think this shows humility and repentance. He returned to the man of God. Remember, the man of God is speaking for God. It shows God's directive, God's will, what God wants for this man's life. It also shows that since he went, he and all his company went. He had influence. It's not just him. And we'll see uh, uh, what he says later, another thing, that he cares about what uh, people see. So, and all his company, and he came and stood before him. He didn't stand at the door this time. And Elisha didn't stay inside. He didn't send a servant. They talked face to face. This is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, now this is Elisha talking, but he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will, reserve, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him, this influential, powerful, strong, brave man, he urged him, Take it. Take it. I'm clean. But he refused, just like Abraham. When the kings, he came back from the defeat of the kings, and the king said, take some of this stuff. And Abraham said, nope, 
I'm not taking that stuff from Sodom. I'm not having anybody think that you made me rich or that God didn't bless me. He urged him. This is a big powerful man, a big influential man, a real happy man now, and a humble but stubborn man of God. So he says, take it. He says, nope, not going to take it. We'll see if we keep reading. I'm not going to take the gift. He said, well, if you're not going to take anything from me, can I take something from you? Verse 17. Then Naaman said, if not, if you're not going to accept my gift, please let there be given to your servant, not the captain, not the bodyguard, not the national hero, your servant. He had a different heart. Let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So, in his new way of thinking, and I personally think we'll see name in heaven. I think he got saved. Theologians, theologians disagree. Hey, compile your information, come to me and convince me. I think he got saved. I think he repented. Did he know how to worship God now? I don't think so. You know, his, his whole idea of worship and uh, God's was defiled by all of his upbringing, all of his history. You know, he, he, he knew about pagan gods. Uh, what, what were all the altars in the Old Testament made of? When they say, go build an altar, what did they build it out of? Rocks. Rocks. Don't cut the rocks. God made that rock just like He wanted it, just so you could put it in this altar and it would fit perfectly. He made that rock back in creation. It'll fit. Put it in there. Naaman don't know that. What were pagan altars made out of? What does it say? They were mounds. They were high places. They were, they were just build a, erect something Sometimes it was a rock. Sometimes it was a wooden idol. Sometimes, they just, like he said, they just build up a, a mound of dirt. He didn't know yet. Did Elisha condemn him and say, "No, you don't do it like that. You build it out of rocks." No, he didn't know that. He was new in the faith. He said, "Let me have two mule loads of as much as they can carry." He said, "Because from now on, I want to make sacrifices." Like y'all do. I want to sacrifice to your God. What in the world do you imagine made that muddy Jordan muddy? That nasty Samaritan dirt. He didn't want any part of it before. Now he can't wait to take some of it home. He says, this is big. I've changed. God's healed me. I'm thinking different now than I used to. Everything's different. He goes on. He's trying to cover his uh, future. Again, remember, he's new. He don't. He probably don't know much about even the Jewish way of sacrificing. He didn't. He didn't say, "I'd like to become a Jew." Uh, anything like that. 
The account here in Scripture does not say that he was a proselyte. It says he went and washed. He repented to Jesus. And he said in verse 18, he's talking to Elisha, and he said, in this matter, what matter? Well, he said, I got a job. I go back to my job Monday. It's part of my job is when, uh, I forget the king's name. I got it written down here. When this king goes into the temple, he says, I'm with him. I'm, I'm his bodyguard. He don't go anywhere without me. The bathroom is the only place he goes and I don't go. The bedroom is the only place he goes and I don't go. When he goes in there, and this, I'm picturing, I don't know, I'm picturing an old king, this big, strong, brave bodyguard, and it, it says, and uh, he says, he, le he leans on me. Uh, leaning on my arm. Have you ever seen the movie, uh, The King and I? King of Siam in this movie. The king, I think it's pretty accurate. You could never have your head higher than the king's head. So if they thought like this, you know, you can't be above, he had to, if he's leaning on the king, the king's going to bow down. He has to bow down. Is his heart in worship? Nah. His heart's not in worship. He's not thinking about Remen. He's wishing he was somewhere else. But he's got a job to do. So he said, in verse 18, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Remen to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Remen, when I bow myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha says, No, you don't build an altar out of dirt and you don't go in the house of Rimmon. He didn't do that. This is a picture of God's grace. Now we know God hates idolatry. We know He hates every idol of every kind. They're all false. They're all satanic. They're all demonic. But He also knew what's in Naaman's heart. And here is Elisha speaking as God's man with God's authority, with God's instruction. And what does he say? Go in peace. Personally, I think Elisha was depending on the fact that his conversion was real, that he would pursue uh, sanctification, even though we don't know anything about that till the New Testament. He would pursue it. He would grow in his faith. He would learn. He would find somebody, probably that little girl, to teach him. And he would eventually come to know that, you know, you're not really supposed to go in there, even if it is your job. If we look ahead in the other chapters, I forget which verse it was. There's a very, very interesting account where these two kings were plotting against each other and the uh, Syr Syrian king, he said, that other king, he's going to be over there and I'm going to take my army over there and we're going to get him, we're going to kill him. But Elisha, through divine revelation, knew about it. He said, you don't want to go over there. 
They're waiting on you. They're going to kill you. Done that two times. And that king brought all his advisors together and he said, listen, listen boys, we got a mole. Which one of y'all, who is telling our plans to the other side? And one of the servants said, mm-mm, nah, ain't no mole. He said, Elisha knows the words that you speak in your bedroom. That's the power that God had. That's the way Elisha worked. So we see later these two kings. I'm, I'm, what my point is, they kept on warring to a point. Uh, the Syrian king at one point, it says that he was making plans and he called together all his advisors, all his servants. And there was a name missing. It was Naaman's name. No mention is made of Naaman after this. Did he just quit? Did he retire? Was he killed as a traitor? Was he fired? Again, Scripture don't say. What I'm saying is, when Elisha dealt with him as God's spokesman, he, he put forth grace. And he said, that's between you and God. God will work that out. You learn. You work on it. You go back home. You listen to that little girl. And you'll be all right. Let's keep going. The effects of sin are... Uh, the consequences of sin are deep and ongoing. <clears throat> if I contract a STD because I'm sinning and I repent and I restore my relationship, does that STD go away? No. Sin has consequences. We'll also see that there are people who look good. Remember, Naaman looked good, at least to a point. But he had sin. Sin was the problem. He looked good, but sin was the problem. Sin was in there. So, Naaman tried to give him a gift. He wouldn't take a gift. He said, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone a short distance from him, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Don't you figure servants talk between themselves? Naaman's servants, he brought all these servants. He had this big entourage, who knows how many chariots, servants, at least two donkeys, who knows how many people, how many servants. Okay, then Elisha's servant, we know he had one servant, Gehazi, his name here. They get together and they talk, well, how you been doing? How's things at your house? Well, it's pretty bad. You been eating good, uh, Gehazi? Well, I'm getting full, but I'm not eating very much. It's mostly rice. 
So they talked. So he found out about the how many dollars, at least a million dollars worth of stuff and a bunch of clothes. He said, there it goes. I'm watching it right away. And, they, and uh, Gehazi said, I intend to have something. See how he referred to him? He has spared this Naaman. That's almost a, a, a term of contempt. Naaman the Syrian, this nasty man that had to be washed. He didn't even take the reward. So, verse 21. So Gehazi followed Naaman. Now that sounds very deliberate, don't it? It didn't, don't say they were going on two different paths in the same direction. No, this was very deliberate, planned out. He meant to do it. What does that say about Gehazi? He lived with the man of God. He was a pretender. <clears throat> so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Like saying, Hey, what's wrong? And he said, All's well. Watch this big, awful lie. And a part of another lie. My servant, my master, has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Now, there's probably all kinds of theological truths wrapped up in this that I don't know. But the, what's laying right on top is he lied. He told a part truth because we find out in the next chapter that actually there were some sons of the prophets come to Elisha's house. It also lets us know about Elisha's house. It was probably small. And they said, hey, this place is too small. Let's go over there and build a new house. That's how I knew about his house on the dead end street. But he said, we're just poor people. These guys come, house guests. They look poor. They're just preacher boys. I remember last week or two I asked somebody, do you think this is where we got the term in this area, preacher boys? Two sons of the prophets. Give them something. Can you, can you spare a gift? Again, Naaman's change of heart, his generosity. What does he say? He asked for one. Uh, Gehazi asked for one. In verse 23, Naaman said, Hey, man, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him, just like he did Elisha. He urged him, take it. Elisha didn't take it, but Gehazi took it like a big old fish. Swallowing up that bait with a big old hook in it. And he urged him. And he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, some translations say the citadel, which we just read about, uh, Brandon just mentioned, the citadel, this high place, the place where they lived. He took them from their hand. Here's more deception. He don't want the servants walking up there. He don't want these guys walking up with two big old armloads of money and clothes because who's going to see? Elisha. He says, I don't want that to be seen. He said, if he sees me carrying stuff, he'll think I've just been to the grocery store to get stuff for supper. If I'm carrying stuff, it won't look too bad. He took the stuff, sent the servants away. More deception. And he put them in the house. He took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. Remember, 
Elisha has supernatural power from God. We're not told at the beginning of the story that anybody spoke to Elisha about Naaman. It says he heard. I personally think God told him. From the other account, I just told you about in the future, uh, they said that God tells Elisha things and he knows what you're saying in your bedroom, buddy. He knows, man. He thinks he's going to fool him. And he stood before his master, just like Naaman stood before Elisha. One stood in humility. This one stands in deception. Was this a, a question put there, giving him an opportunity to repent, to come clean? From his interaction with Naaman, he dealt in grace. I think he was. I think he was given an opportunity to confess. He did not take the opportunity. The question is, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. I've been here in the house. I was in the back room. He, he thinks he can fool Elisha. But Elisha says in verse 26, But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Wow. There was an account, uh, I think it's chapter 4 before this. Remember the Shunammite woman? She made him and Gehazi a little room on the roof that's passing by a lot. said, if you're pa passing by here a lot, hey, we'll make you a room. You can stay up there. They was good to him. Elisha said, these people are nice. What can we do? How can we help these people? And they, they even asked her, the Shunammite woman, how can we help you? Can we do something for you? Can we talk to the king for you? Can we talk to the captain of the guard for you? That shows you the captain of the guard was high official. She says, no. I've got family. Don't worry about me. What did Gehazi say? He said, he said, you know, she don't have any kids. And her husband is probably not going to be able to get her a kid. He's old. And Elisha said, call her in here. So he called her in here. And just like Elizabeth, she stood in the door and he told her, miraculously, about a year from now, I'm sorry, Sarah, not Elizabeth. He said, miraculously, in a year, you're going to have a, you're going to have a son. And she said, don't tease me. Don't leave me on like that. That would be a great gift. Sure enough, a year later, she had a son. The son was playing out in the field with his father. Remember the story? His father was plowing. Working in the field, the son was there with him. The son said, my head, my head. It sounds like sunstroke. He carried him to his mother. He sat on her knees till noon, and then it just looked like he died. He faded away. This one and only gift of a son. This is a side story. She jumps on the donkey, takes off. She catches Elisha. This is the point of this story. And he turns around and says, Is all well? Just like Naaman did. 
just like he sees here, we see in verse 26, he said, there was a time when I turned around in the chariot and saw this Shunammite woman chasing me. He said, did not my heart go with you? And was not my heart looking through Naaman's eyes and saw you when you chased his chariot? He turned in his chariot to meet you. And then he sees what we come to know as in the New Testament, the truth. Finish this phrase. The love of money is the root of all evil. Selfishness is the source of all our idolatry. We worship ourselves. So that's what Gehazi had. Elisha saw not only his sin, but he saw ahead to his motives. He saw into the future. He knew what Gehazi was planning. Look at this. Was it a time to accept money? There is no mention anywhere. Well, yeah, he might have told him what he had. Was it a time to accept money and garments? We know that. We also know that Naaman was not carrying olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. Elisha said, I know what you're planning. You're not satisfied with the servant's life. You're not satisfied with the servant of God's life. It's a simple life. You're never going to be rich. I don't know any devout man of God that's serving God faithfully that is affluently rich. You may. I don't. He said, that's not us. He said, them people are not us. But Gehazi, that's what you're wanting, ain't it? He said, you want to buy all these things. If you had money, you could buy olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. You're not happy with what you've got, are you, Gehazi? You're not really trusting God, are you, Gehazi? You trust money and stuff, don't you, Gehazi? So the sin that was in Gehazi became visible. Leprosy represents sin. It was already there. It just manifested itself. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman, just like he had, shall cling to you and your descendants forever, even his family. So he, Gehazi, went out from his presence a leper like snow. His skin was ashen. It was defiled. All that sin blossomed out and it became visible to everybody. <laughs> so, in a short application, short, simple, and crude, let's think about these people things they said and the things they'd done and the evidences in their lives. Naaman. He had leprosy. Represented sin. Did he ask for leprosy? Nah. I doubt if, you know, like I said, they were primitive people. They probably didn't know 
what caused leprosy or even how it was transmitted. He got it somehow. He contracted it naturally. It was in him. Do we have to consent to sin? Do we have to say, God, pour sin on me? No. Sin is in there. The most precious little baby in this place of all these families. Sin is in there. It's sad. It's horrible. It's in there when we're born. Naaman had leprosy. We have sin. The truth is, we may not die from sin like I described before. But without cleansing, we will die with it. In it. And after this, the judgment. Do you really want to face Almighty God with that sin? No, you don't. Naaman, all his good points and redeeming qualities couldn't help his condition. Leprosy is an accurate depiction of sin. Naaman is not able or aware to even help himself. He needs help. He has to have a help from outside source, from a divine source. He got it. That describes Naaman. Can you identify? How about the little slave girl? We don't know her name. Was it Maggie? I don't know. But faith was pictured here. Although she didn't say it, what do we know about faith? What do we know about salvation? Were people in the Old Testament saved in a different way than we're saved? Impossible. Can't happen. They didn't. No sacrifice ever saved any soul. The object of her faith was Jesus. She had been taught to look ahead to Messiah. The closest manifestation of that, I suppose, was Elisha. So she voiced it. She has never seen a leper healed, but her faith was active. Faith, in our modern descriptions, says that it is acting on the revealed will of God. And that's exactly what she done. Could she teach a rabbi? Probably not. Could she carry out sacrifices in the temple? Don't think so. She was a female. She voiced what she knew. She gave what she had, and she pointed to God. She expresses her faith and suggests Naaman take the action. She has knowledge and faith that this scripture doesn't even bother to describe. Did you notice that? It's just a little girl that says, go there and be healed. The scripture won't even elaborate on it. It's merely stated. But the narrative eventually testifies to its power and its truth and the fact that her faith was genuine and the source of her faith was true. We're not told her name, but we will recognize her in heaven. I'm confident. So, is your faith obvious? Hers was. Is it active? Hers was. Is it verbal at all? Do people have to wonder about you? Nobody wondered about that little girl. 
the kings, like I said, <clears throat> they're almost insignificant because they're, they're not very good. The king in Israel was, he's not told his name here. From other scriptures, I found out it was probably Jehoram. The one in Syria was probably Ben-Hadad II. Again, this account don't tell. We think that's who it was. Now, did Ben-Hadad in Syria care genuinely about Naaman's well-being? Probably not. He could probably get another brave guy, another warrior. They were probably lined up for Naaman's position. They probably didn't. They kind of glad he had leprosy. Maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll get killed. Maybe he won't be able to fight good in the next battle. He won't come home. To him, Naaman was an asset and a tool to be exploited. Did Jehoram care about Naaman or even sin in general? I don't think so. It don't seem like it. But he's just afraid of another attack. Jehoram was the one in Samaria. One, Ben-Hadad, is lording his authority over Jehoram and the other is just neglecting his responsibility. These kings were, they were a mess. It, it would be awful to have bad leaders, wouldn't it? It is awful. God sends bad leaders on people who rebel against Him. And we're seeing the, we're seeing the fruit of that. So, are you consumed by worldly issues? These kings were. They were wanting to hold on to their throne. Are you consumed with money or influence or appearances? The kings were. Let's look at Elisha. Can we identify Elisha? Picturing God's work, God's influence, God's man, God speaking, God reaching out to people. He's so spiritual and sensitive to God's will that God reveals things to him without him even asking. He is in as much danger from attack from the neighbors as all the rest, as the king was. He had a life to lose too. If not more, because he was a Christian. He could be killed for his faith. Yet he is not only concerned with God's glory. What does he say? He said, don't tear your clothes, king. Don't worry about that. Just send him to me. I'll, I'll point him to God. He'll know there is a prophet in Israel. He's concerned with God's glory and advancing the kingdom. Literally, the gospel. We have come to know it as the gospel. We don't see that word in the story. He was concerned with the gospel. He's not afraid of Naaman or leprosy. He probably already knows about Gehazi's spiritual deception. But operates apart from it. That's what kind of a upper level guy he was. How could he not know? I think he knew. Is this your business as usual attitude? Are you looking to these things and this thing and these people who can help me or a threat to me? Are you looking to God? This is idolatry. This is faith. That's the little girl. 
Is serving God and the gospel your main priority? What about Gehazi? Like I said before, he lived with Elisha. Probably the godliest man within a thousand miles. Elisha spoke for God. He had supernatural powers. God worked through him. He provided healing and who knows what all. It looked like magic. God done these things through <coughs> Elisha. Gehazi lived in that same house. He no doubt constantly heard teaching directly from God's Word. He pretended to be pious and dedicated to God. But his heart finally revealed itself. Who knows how long he held out. He put on a good show. He didn't cuss in front of Elisha. He didn't steal in front of Elisha. He didn't do anything outwardly visible to where we would have known. I think Elisha supernaturally known. His lust for money was a symptom, not the disease. What's the, what's the disease? What's the problem? Sin. He was hiding sin and selfish ambition. And in verse 26, Elisha named it when he listed all them things. He says, Gehazi, did you really think by deceiving me that you could get money and servants and livestock and vineyards and real estate? Elisha named it. He knew all the details. So his deception and his sin, I mean his deception was a symptom. Sin was his problem. And I see this constantly. I Honestly, I can't believe people don't talk about it more in Christian circles uh, because we're told and we see evil and we hear people talk about evil and bad things happening to people and corruption, especially in government or in politics or in business. And people don't mention it. But I see it and I think, do people not see that, that the love of money actually drives people to sin? Not money itself. You can have a lot of money. But the love of money, if you love money and you can't let go of it, you can't let God use that money, if you hoard that money for selfish reasons or if you, everything you do is for self, 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 and you worship self with money, that's, that's it says clearly, it, the love of money is the root of all evil. It is like the heart of idolatry and sin because it comes out of here. It is selfish idolatry. He thought he could provide more and better than God. He didn't trust God. He trusted himself. He said, I can get that money. Remember, repentance and faith is powerful and beautiful, just like we saw in the psalm. He said, I'm, I'll, I'll, see your, I'll seek your beauty, God. Repentance and faith. Go and wash. Salvation. God's gospel. Powerful. It saved the worst people 
who knows how many people Nahum had killed in cold blood. Uh, the Apostle Paul killed people. David killed women and kids. All these things. All kinds of sin. Sin that we wouldn't want to talk about. It's powerful. Wash it all away. No sin. You're clean. It's very powerful. Repentance and faith. Simple. Repentance and faith. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. You were born with sin. I was born with sin. Couldn't help it. Didn't ask for it. Can't do a thing about it. Just like leprosy. If you don't get cleansed, you may not die of it, but you will die with it. And then you'll stand before God with all that sin that His Son died for. You don't want that. Do you want to die with it? No. Sin has consequences. The wages of sin is death and separation from God in hell forever. So, believers, I believe we're mostly believers here, repent. There's nothing that says a believer cannot repent. We can't go an hour without sinning. Repent. Confess it and repent. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's simple. It works every time. Elisha told Naaman, this is going to work. There's no question about it. If you follow these instructions, go wash. Two things. You go, it's going to work. Repent and believe. It absolutely will work. When we as believers, 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He will. It absolutely works. We have God's Word on it. Those who are not saved. Maybe you're here and you're not saved. You're not, you haven't come to faith yet. Repent. Simply. Simply. Repent means my life is going this way. This is what I'm doing. I'm living my life. That is hell. I'm headed to hell. There's no other road. There's no, there's no place this road can lead except fiery hell and judgment. I am flying this way with all of my might. Repent means you turn around. You turn to God. It literally means turn around. Repent. If you're not a believer, repent. Go like Naaman. Take action. Respond to the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. He had to wash. You will be washed. Let Christ's atonement have its way in your life. Submit to God in faith in Jesus and His atoning work on the cross. Change how you live. We saw in Naaman's life when this miracle was done to him, in him, for him, he changed. Now he was generous. Now he was humble. He showed evidence of repentance. Naaman didn't know everything about God. If you're not 
a believer. You don't have to know everything about God. You have to know you're a sinner and God can fix it. God will cleanse it. He didn't have to know everything. Elisha, speaking with God's authority in God's place, what did he say? Go in peace. You can have peace. Right now you're at war with God. This road to hell, you're fighting God all the way. You can have peace. Obey the gospel and like Naaman, grow in grace. I personally believe Naaman went on to be a mature Christian. Scripture does not tell it. But from the account we see here, I think there is evidence that he did. Please, please, think about it. Them servants, they reasoned with Naaman. They said, can it be that? Is it really? Did you hear what I hear? He said, go and wash and you're mad about it? That was his pride. Please, please don't have pride. It's so, so deadly. You can have a thin, transparent wall of pride between you and God from now to your deathbed. And that thing that's thin as cellophane will keep you from God. Just thin layer of pride. Repent and turn to Jesus. Please, let's pray.